Welcome to the Stony Brook Crossroads Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doyle DeGraw. For more information about this podcast, our community, and other resources, please visit CrossroadsChurchSB.com. So we're glad you're all here and uh, this morning. Got lots of people that are traveling. Kathy's down in Florida with her mom. And so uh, she's enjoying time. They're going to go to church together this morning. And um, to, begin, to begin the message this morning, what I would like to do is I'd like you to stand again. I know you just got seated, but uh, if you would stand up again. And uh, before... Before, Emily, before you put the passage up, I would like everybody to put your hands out in front of you. And I want to read a prophecy that comes from Isaiah chapter 60 that really is a declaration that um, Paul explains a little bit in the passage we're going to look at together in Philippians chapter 2. But it says these words, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. Before we read the passage and before you're seated, I think the reality is that we know there's a lot of confusion and angst and despair and darkness around us. And this passage reminds us that the glory of the Lord rests on His people. He rests on us because of the Holy Spirit that's in us. And it's kind of like, you know, when you look out in the backyard on a summer night and you see those little fireflies kind of flying around and it's like in the middle of all of that darkness, you and I represent kind of like those little fireflies. We just are like this beacon of light that might be all that's necessary to lead someone to the place they need to be. And so with that in mind, if we can put the Philippians passage up there, Emily, I'd like us to go ahead and read this together. Ready? Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Let's read that one again. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Let's read that one again. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. All right, you may be seated. And have your phones ready or your Bibles ready to look at that passage. We want to look at the verses in detail. But the, the extent or the message of this passage that's so clear that just comes out of it, oozes out of the passage, is that the reality of the possibility and the event of salvation that you and I have experienced 
is evidence of how much God loves us. Not only evidence of how much He loves us, but evidence of how much He loves to work in us and through us. I'd like you to say something after me. God loves to work, ready? God loves to work in me and through me. Let's say it again. God loves to work in me and through me. That's why He saved us. That's why He puts the Holy Spirit in us. Because it, he, He's not a respecter of persons, the Scripture says, and He loves to grab a hold of people and put His Holy Spirit in them and turn their life around and make them messengers of salvation and messengers of the Gospel. He loves it when He watches us demonstrate the genuineness of faith to people that are confused and wondering if there's any faith anywhere. He loves to see our sal- His salvation expressed in us. And so if we can look at this passage again, but I don't want to start with verse 12, I want to start with verse 13. Because Paul's not saying to us that we have anything to do with attaining our salvation. I think that's pretty obvious. We're not trying to work harder in order to get saved better. We're working as a result of all of the work that He's done in us. And if He's done work in us, the evidence that work is being done in us is the work that is done through us and by us to other people. So verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I don't know if you realize this but or not, but oftentimes in the, in the Greek language, there are more words for power and energy and work than there are in the English language. Like, for example, if you take the word love, do you know how many Greek words there are for the word love? We say, I love you. Right? So what are different ways of expressing love? What's God's love? Agape. Okay? And so what would be... Um, what would be... Brotherly love. Phileo. All right? And so uh, there are different forms of love. Sexual intimacy love is eros, erotic love. And so love has different expressions. Well, in the same way, words that represent work, authority, and power, like the word authority, is exousia. The word power that's used in Acts chapter 1. Wait for the Holy Spirit and the power, His power will come on you does anybody know what word that is? It's the word dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. His dynamite will fall on you and explode from within you. But in this passage, Paul says, for it is God who works in you, and he uses another word, which is the word energeo. He works in you both to will and to work or to provide the energy for his good, good pleasure. So here's the good news about salvation. God has deposited in every one of us all that's necessary to be of good pleasure to the Father. He's given us everything that we need in order to live out and express this salvation in such a way that it makes a difference not only in our lives, but in the lives of people around us. It's a full package. God loves to work in us. Now, I'm going to make this a participatory message this morning because I really want to get this hammered home. Everybody repeat after me. 
God, God loves to work in me. Ready? God loves to work in me. I don't know if we believe that all of the time. I think that because we battle shame, we battle weakness, we battle lack of confidence, we battle senses of inadequacy, we wonder if God really wants to work in us or not. But the reality is, just by the expression of salvation, God loves to work in us, and He loves to work in us enough that He puts all the energy that's necessary for us to work. If you think about it, that's what Paul meant when he said this. Let me just look this up real quick because I didn't write it down. In the beginning of Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Even when you think, oh, there's no way he's ever going to finish his work in me. It's not dependent on whether you think he's going to finish it or not. It's dependent on what he put in you already. And so we participate with that work that he's doing in us. And I love the fact that Paul says he's doing it according to his good pleasure. Every time he sees us working something out, helping us to grow closer to Him and more faithful in the gifts and callings He's given to us. He's, the Father is up there just saying, that's my son. That's my daughter. Let me, look, look. Let me tell you about them. It's just like we do with our kids when we are excited and, and filled with pleasure and joy over the things that we've seen them do. We can't wait to go tell someone else what they did. It was my kid that scored the soccer goal. It was my kid that ran the fastest in the race. It was my kid that accomplished these kinds of things. And the Father takes good pleasure in watching us work out our salvation. This energy is the energy that gives us the ability to subdue all things to God. It's really the same energy that's been working since creation when God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. I give you all that you need in order to be effective that way. It's the energy that fills us so we can win souls. It's the energy that helps us to do His will, even when there's everyone around us saying that we need to do something different. It's the energy that flows from the prayer of a righteous man or woman. It's the energy that works in partnership with faith. In partnership, meaning that I combine the energy of God in me with the energy of God in you, and in our partnership, it's like exponential. It gets multiplied. And we begin to do more things than we ever imagined possible. It's the energy that works with the authority of God to actually work on people's hearts and minds so that we see their hearts and minds changed for His purpose. So Paul says that God works in us according to His will and His good pleasure. Now just kind of put this in the back of your mind in your back pocket for a minute according to his will has to do with sovereignty it has to do with his plan his rulership his ultimate authority over everything that you and I do and sometimes the word sovereignty gets a little bit of a bad rap because we get a little nervous like well are you saying that God doesn't let me do what I want to do but we are working out things according to his will it's His will for you to use His energy. It's His good pleasure 
for you to express His will through your life. So we work out our salvation. We work out our salvation that's already in us. We work from that point of what God has done. So verse 12, if we can put that, the verses up on the screen again. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now the words for fear and trembling in, in an English sense, at least when I read this, I'm thinking, then if you tell me to do this with fear and trembling, then I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to sit right there because if I, if I do much more than just sit right there, I'm going to screw it up. And so I don't want to mess this up, so I'm not going to do anything. That's not what the words fear and trembling mean. The words fear and trembling, the word fear has to do with an expression of worship. It's because we realize we are so blessed with the reality that we are filled with God's salvation and His good pleasure that we, we have this desire. We, we have a, almost a fear that we can't do anything else because it comes out of something that's birthed within us. And the word trembling has the idea of um, wanting to do whatever is necessary to get what God's called me to do from this point to this point. He's given us the precious gift of salvation. He's given us the precious gift of salvation for ourselves, and He's given us the precious gift of salvation for others. We realize, I think, because of the pressures of life, how delicate this gift is. We realize that it's almost like a delicate piece of china. And it's like taking, salvation is almost like taking a bowl of soup in a delicate piece of china and finding some way to navigate a long flight of stairs and getting it up to the top floor without spilling it and without dropping it. And so fear and trembling is, I want to steward very well what God has put in me to do. It's not because I'm afraid but it's because it's my joy to make sure that what I deliver to you is exactly what He's delivered to me. That's what Paul's talking about. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All the works that you and I are doing, put your name in front of it, whatever the works are that you're supposed to do, God prepared them while He was knitting you together in, his mother's, in your mother's womb. And, and here's, here's the thing that's kind of interesting to think about. Salvation works this way. Salvation quickens by the Holy Spirit what God has prepared for you to do. That means that all the people that we see around us the only reason we're any different than they are is because the Holy Spirit has birthed something. And we have joined together with the Holy Spirit and participate with Him. We are partakers of His grace. Anybody that's around us that begins, that chooses to receive Christ into their life and become partakers of His grace, guess what happens? The works that God prepared in them to do when they were knit together in their mother's womb an explosion takes place and those works begin just like they did with you and I. Otherwise, they just sit there dormant. 
And that means that we've got neighbors, we've got friends, we've got people we work with, we've got people we go to school with that are walking around without the understanding and the reality that if they would give their life to God, if they would turn their life over to Christ, if they would allow the Holy Spirit into their life, they would experience a level of relationship to this creation, to other people, and to God Himself, unlike anything they ever imagined possible before. And as soon as we receive His salvation, we are immediately put on assignment. John chapter 14, verse 12. If we could put that up, Emily. is a passage that's pretty familiar to us. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. So, help me now participate with me a little bit. Who are the ones that are going to do the works that He has been doing? Whoever believes in Him. Whoever believes in Him. So who's disqualified from doing the works that He... Non-believers. But what changes their status? If they decide to believe in Him. If they go from non-believer status to believer status, they are qualified just like us. And so our goal is to try to get as many people as possible to move from the status of non-believer because all of those works are dormant to the place of believer so that God could be using them just like we want Him to be using us. But once salvation comes into us, everyone, whether it's that person that doesn't believe yet and doesn't know about it, or, or the experience that we've had, we are immediately placed on assignment to do the works of God. It's the effective action of God working His salvation in us. It's the privilege and the responsibility that we have with fear and trembling to steward the work with total dependence with the intention of participating with God until the works are complete. Either until Jesus returns or the day I die, whichever happens first. So we work out our salvation as co-laborers with God. And we're to do it with fear and trembling. With this high sense of, of, of privilege and this high sense of responsibility. So I have a question. This is not a rhetorical question. Give me some words that describe the opposite of working. I want negative words, not just rest. Rest is a positive one. So how, how about too much rest? Lazy. Give me some other words that are synonyms of lazy. The Proverbs use them. What? Dormant? Dormant? Okay. Binge watching. Binge watching, <laughs> okay. Sedentary. Complacent. How about uh, there's a word that's used in Proverbs that uh, comes from an animal that hangs on a branch. Slothful. That's a good one, you know. If you just want to make somebody really feel bad about themselves, just tell them, you know, you're such a sloth. I mean, that's even worse than lazy. I mean, sloth, it just comes out of your mouth, just sloth, you know. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
I want you to see something. Because there's another word that's a synonym of these words. And Paul, he's concerned about this with all of his churches. But I want you to notice now in this passage. Now we ask you brothers and sisters to acknowledge those who work hard among you. Who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. So Paul obviously is placing a high value on people that work hard. Hold them in the highest regard. In love because of their work, live in peace with each other. And then catch this one. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, slothful, lazy, complacent, watching too many video games. Well, you were the one that said binge watching, right? Don't get so defensive. (laughs) So he says, admonish the idle. And we'll look at the rest of this passage in just a minute. But this is interesting because the word idle is the word attactos. Even sounds bad. Attactos. Warn those who are attactos. And the word idle, this Greek word, Let me give you a a definition. It's a person that's disorderly and out of rank, like with soldiers not lined up. It's irregular, inordinate, immoderate pleasures. It's someone that's spending way too much time on things that don't really matter. It's deviating from prescribed order or rule. Paul is saying, encourage Admonish the brothers and sisters that have gotten out of order. Admonish the ones that have gotten inordinate and have spent too much time wasting away the time that God has given to them. Admonish the ones who are deviating from the prescribed order of rule. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together Encourage one another, spur one another to love and good deeds. And it also says, make sure that you um, don't, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together, which is the habit of some. Which is the custom of some. I don't know how to get around this. There's all sorts of good reasons to be away from assembling, whether it's assembling here like this, or assembling in some sort of ecclesia type gathering that we call church but if people get lazy and they find reasons and excuses not to gather together they have become idols they have become idle in their behavior and the word idol is also the root of the word idolatry because people that have become idle that way who's first in their life themselves And the way it's supposed to be, according to Jesus, the two commandments that He gave us were, love the Lord your God, what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is that idle? No. And then what's the next commandment? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, so if I'm loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'm loving my neighbor as I love myself, I don't have time to be idle. But when I start getting tired of doing that, then I slip into a place of becoming idle, then I've also slipped into a place of idolatry. 
And Paul makes it very clear that we're supposed to admonish those that step out of order. He goes on in the rest of that passage in 1 Thessalonians, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So the Paul backs away a little bit. First he says, admonish the idol. So he says, you know, if you want to punch him or something, if you need to shake him, then he backs away a little bit. And he said, but if they've gotten faint-hearted, if they've gotten weak or whatever, just put some courage in them. Encourage them. Gently get them back to the place they need to be. So we work out our salvation as a sign of faith. Demonstrating our dependence on God. And it means that we're not stepping out of formation and lazily letting others do the work that God has called us to do. Verse 14, if we can go back to Philippians. Let's read verse 14 again. Ready? Do everything without grumbling or... No, that was supposed to be all of you with me. Ready? Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Wouldn't you love to just erase that one right out of the Bible? I mean, come on. That's... I mean, that just... That verse just makes you want to grumble. I mean, even, even to read it makes you grumble. Because you just read it and you go, well, that's ridiculous. And as soon as you say that's ridiculous, you just grumbled, Right? You're disputing it. You're already arguing just by reading it. So I don't even like to read it. So let's skip it. We're not even going to talk about it. No, I do want to say this. I had this thought. How do I tell if I'm trusting God's sovereignty and His work in my life? I'm not complaining. So the more I'm grumbling and arguing, grumbling and complaining... That's implying that I'm distrusting His sovereignty and His will in my life. And the other interesting thing is the reason he says don't grumble and complain is it's not only about my relationship to God, but if I'm grumbling and complaining about you as a result of my lack of trust in His will in my life, what happens to our relationship if I'm always grumbling and complaining about you? our relationship breaks down. Grumbling and complaining produces disunity. And so, if we're experiencing a lot of unity, you know what happens to grumbling and complaining? It goes down. So if you notice grumbling and complaining increasing, if it hasn't happened yet, it will happen pretty soon. We will experience disunity. If we're letting it breed and build up that poison that it does. So that's, I think, why Paul put that in there. Because he's talking about working together, and we can't work together very well if we're not being really careful about our relationship to trusting the will of God in our lives and the relationship that He's placed us in. Now, <clears throat> we're in a day and age where if we don't like the neighborhood we're in, we just sell our house or get a new rental or whatever and move to a different place. If we don't like the job we have, the people we're working with, we just, you know, if, we get, if we're the boss, we fire people. 
If we're not the boss, we go find another place to go work. But I think what gives the more credence to this passage when Paul says don't grumble and complain, where is he at when he, write, when he dictates these words? Do you remember? He's in prison. Do you remember what, what his position, how, how do I need to say this? What's the configuration of his prison cell? He's chained between two guards. You know, I want to say, Paul, that's kind of ridiculous. Don't grumble or complain. And he says, that's what I'm trying not to do. I don't have any choice. He can't say to the one of the guards, hey, how about if you unlock these chains today? So Paul is saying, I have to trust him in the midst of my circumstances. And I've found out that even if I'm chained with one guard on one hand and one guard on the other, it doesn't do me any good to grumble and complain. In fact, what it ends up doing is defeating the purpose of my greater work that I need to accomplish. Because if I lower the level of my grumbling and complaining, the possibility increases that one or both of these guards will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. That's why it becomes even more important to put that in the context of our work. Because the world is depending on us to see their way in the darkness through life. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Um, Are we in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation? I would say so among whom you shine as lights in the world. And when Christ's followers are working out their salvation, that God started in them and demonstrating that they trust God in all that they're doing, they end up providing a light for others to find their way home. Just like when there was no form and everything was void and darkness covered the deep, What was one of the declarations that changed everything? One of God's declarations. What did He say? Let there be light. You know what He says to every one of us every day of our life, every hour of every day? He says what I had us read together or I I read over you this morning, which was, Arise, shine, for your light has come. He speaks that over you every day. Why? Because you and I are walking into chaos and darkness. And we may be the only light that helps lead someone to the place of salvation. That's why He wants us to recognize our role. Verse 16 says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or or labor in vain. If I, if I fail to work out my salvation or participate with God or co-labor with God, then at the end of the day, I'll have nothing to show for my labors. And the thing that we're supposed to demonstrate is to prove and prove that we've co-labored with God 
is that we have participated as lights in the darkness leading others to find their way home. That means we're supposed to be the ones holding the flashlight, so to speak. But if we're a stumbling block to others, if we're a stumbling block to a brother or sister in understanding their salvation even better, then we're not following what Paul is encouraging the Philippians to do. But instead, if we become the ones that become the light in the pathway, and we can say, come on, we can go this way. And so I want us to take a moment to think about this. I heard this last week, a couple weeks ago, someone, an article I read shared a prophetic phrase that they heard in their service. And I want you to think about anybody that you know right now that's a prodigal son or daughter, or anybody that you know that maybe you went to school with, maybe you used to go to church with them, and they don't go to church anymore. They've been drifting. They've been away from their faith. They left their faith even for a long time. Got somebody in mind? I think we all know someone, if not more than one. And the word, the phrase was, prepare for reentry. Prepare for reentry. And the encouragement that I want to give us this morning is there seems to be a stirring. There seems to be a stirring in this fatherless generation that we live in where there's going to be a call to prodigal sons and daughters to come home. And the church has a responsibility to get ready for re-entry. I can still remember the day when my oldest son, Nathan, was 18. And he said, Dad, I don't know that I believe in God like you do anymore. Um... You might as well have just punched me right in the gut with that one. That was 22 years ago. And in his journey over the last 22 years, he's battled an alcohol addiction. Today, October the 20th, 2019, is day number 40 of his sobriety, which started on September 10th. I'm preparing, our family is preparing for his re-entry. He doesn't need punishment. He doesn't need shame. He needs light. He needs workers that are lights in the world of chaos and darkness to find his way home. All of us have sons and daughters friends, 
and family members that need to find their way home. So I'd like us, I'm not quite finished, but I'd like us to pause and just pray for a moment. Would you bow your heads? And I want you to think of those persons that need to find their way home. And Lord, right now, we agree together and we grab a hold of and claim the promise of that prophetic word to prepare for re-entry. And we pray for our sons, we pray for our daughters, we pray for our friends that we know that have drifted from their faith. And we pray that they would re-enter into relationship with you. And if we could have the privilege to be the ones that are the light to lead them in the process of finding their way back, we would be grateful to have that privilege. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last thing I want to say is that salvation for us is never individualistic. One of the worst things that's happened in our Western culture is this idea that we get personally saved and it's just good enough for me, myself, and I. But salvation is always about community. It's always communal. It's never just about me and it's never just about my own particular needs. It's always about us. And that's the reason for verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. I just ask you this morning, how willing are we to be a sacrificial offering for the person to our right or our left? How how willing are we to give up everything we've got to give to be there, to sit with them, to pray with them, to not be off somewhere that they can't get in contact with us? How willing are we to be that person that is sacrificing our time and energy to be like an offering that's poured out. In other words, even if I have to sacrifice in you in order for you to grow in your faith, I can rejoice and embrace the gladness of God. How willing are you to sacrifice? Not just for yourself, but for one another. How well are you stewarding the salvation that He secured for you? When you find yourself grumbling and complaining, I encourage you to see it as a signal that maybe you've gotten out of alignment and ask the Holy Spirit to to get you back to where you should be. And then I want you to take some time this week and ask ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of your place in His plan of salvation that He's ordained for you to work out your salvation, not just for your sake, but for the sake of others, but most importantly, for His sake. So I'd like you to stand and before, as the worship team gets ready to come, I want to ask you to put your hands out in front of you. And I want to read again the passage from Isaiah chapter 60. And I want you to receive this as a declaration as a people that are lights in the darkness. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will be seen upon you. For our closing blessing this morning, I want to bless you with what I normally do, but I want you to be thinking about those persons that need God's grace and God's peace. We all need more of His grace and peace, right? But there are those that need grace and peace, those that are around us that need His grace and peace. So hold out your hands to receive this, not just for yourself, but to give it away. The Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you and give you His grace so that you might give grace to others. And the Lord turn the light of His countenance upon you and give you His peace so that you might give His peace to others. Go with, go in and with the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. Amen.